Hello and greetings. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters and the gift of spending time as we explore what God has made known in Christ. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Jesus, when he lived upon the earth, preached a message, and it's called the Gospel of the Kingdom in Matthew 4, 17 through and 23, and Luke 9, 27, 17, 20 through 21. And he made it clear that the kingdom was in their midst, that they would see this kingdom within their generation. And this is why the disciples were looking forward to this reign of Jesus, and that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to establish this reign, and they would reign with him. And that's, that, that's a lot of the reason why they had tagged along with him. But then he was crucified. And that seemed to confound all these expectations of what Jesus was going to do. But then on the other hand, on the third day, he arose from the dead. And we're told in Luke 24, 50-53, in Acts 1, 1-11, that Jesus ascended to the Father 40 days after that. But what would then happen? And whatever happened with all that kingdom talk? Well, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples that all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. And Peter, when he preached to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2, wrapped up his statement by saying, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. In Acts 2 and verse 36. Since ever since he has been ascended to the Father and until he returns, Jesus is Lord. And he reigns over the kingdom of God. So how did this happen? How is this so? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26, Jesus called them foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Jesus says, are all part of the prophecies that were made about him, that he was to suffer and then enter into glory. And when you read the prophets, we can understand, of course, the big message in Isaiah 52 and 53 with the suffering servant uh, that talked about the suffering of God's servant. And a lot of passages, like in Isaiah 2 and in 9, 11, and many others spoke of the reign of this, the, the branch of David and the kingdom that would be established uh, that would glorify all that God had done in David. And so many had expected the Messiah to accomplish these things while on earth. But this is not the way that it was going to accomplish uh, and there's a, a, a hint that Jesus has constantly given throughout his preaching, where he talks about himself as the Son of Man. And that even when he stands before uh, the high priest, he says that he's the Son of Man will come with the clouds and glory. And Son of Man talk goes back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel had seen a vision that the Ancient of Days, Father, takes his seat, and that one like a son of man came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So when Jesus is speaking of himself as the son of man, Yes, he's speaking of himself as a human, uh, and that we must always remember that, but he's got this Danielic 
uh, messianic overtone on, going on here. And, of course, the confusing detail for the Israelites is the idea that he is presented for the Ancient of Days and given this kingdom. But we understand that Jesus not just arose from the dead, but ascended to the Father. We understand that that is Jesus as a Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days to receive this everlasting dominion and this kingdom. Along with the fact that he had to go stand before the Father to receive this kingdom from Daniel 7. We have uh, what the Hebrews author pulls out from Psalm 110 about Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That he had to present himself before the Father uh, to be able to provide the uh, priesthood that would provide true atonement. That there's already a priesthood on earth. He could not be a priest on earth. The Hebrews author declares in Hebrews 7 through 10. Uh, but instead, he ascends to heaven, where he is standing beside the Father, continually making intercession and propitiation for our sins, thanks to the one sacrifice that he has already offered, and that he reigns as this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, uh, and that God has in Philippians 2 exalted Jesus because he, was, he, he humbled himself and thus God exalted him and has now given him the name above every name. And that's another important theme about the ascension and the, resur- and the lordship of Jesus. Uh, Paul will say in Romans 8, 17-18 that we will be glorified with him provided we suffer with him. That Jesus himself embodies that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So he humbled himself and was greatly exalted. And this is why we are to humble ourselves if we want to likewise be exalted. So this is why the ascension is such an important part of the gospel story. It's very often overlooked. And it leads to the question, okay, Jesus is risen, so why isn't he still here in the resurrection body so we can all see him and say, yep, he's raised, therefore we should believe in him? Well, because all of these things had to be done in this way so that he would obtain this kingdom and that he would be able to reign there in a transcendent way and that he can provide that continual propitiation as both king and priest. So, what kind of authority, what is the nature of the authority that Jesus now has as Lord? And in fact, the message from, of the apostles from the beginning is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is risen, and therefore Jesus is Lord. That in Acts 2.36, this is what leads to the 3,000 repenting and, and getting baptized, is recognizing that God has made Jesus, whom they had crucified, both Lord and Christ. Uh, these are both terms uh, that uh, are associated with ruling. Uh, Christ has become so easily understood as just kind of Jesus' last name, as if his name is Jesus H. Christ, which is not the way it is used in the New Testament. It's a title, Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, that is the King, because he now reigns. When we see Christ, we need to think King. It is a term of rule. And Lord, of course, Kurios, not just has the Old Testament association with uh, Yahweh, uh, but also, uh, Caesar claimed to be Curios. So the fact that he considers himself Lord, that Jesus is Lord of Lords uh, in Revelation 19 for good reason. In Acts 3, 11 through 26, uh, when P- Peter talks about how the man born lame was healed, he says, why do you think that we have power to do this? It's not because of us that this has happened, that the power is coming from the name of Jesus, what God has done in Jesus 
and, and how Jesus has been glorified. In Acts 4, when he talks to the Sanhedrin, he says the same thing. The power that has done this is the power that comes from the name of Jesus. Uh, in Acts 10, 34-43, uh, when he's talking to Cornelius, Jesus is Lord of all, and that begins his preaching about it. That is why, throughout the New Testament, it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing Jesus as Lord, as the one who is in charge. Uh, we see this exemplified even in Acts 17, where we've got the sons of Sceva who are trying to say, I adjure you to come out to the demons by the, the Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demons will say, I know Jesus and I am aware of Paul, but who are you? And of course, you know, uh, messes those guys up. That even people who don't really have full confidence can yet invoke the name of Jesus and that there was power in that name. That when Saul sees the risen Christ, he, he doesn't know who he is, but he knows enough to know he is Lord in Acts 9, 3 through 9, uh, and thus is willing to submit to him. And that, of course, transforms everything that Paul understood about everything and uh, set Paul on a very different trajectory in his life. And not only that, we have the scenes in Revelation. We've already made mention of Revelation 19, where Jesus is victorious on his horse, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is able to slay all of his enemies with the sword of his mouth. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, the, the vision of Jesus as Lord that is seen by John is is in terms of the Ancient of Days, where the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man basically kind of merge into one there in Daniel 7, 13, uh, 11 through 14. And all of that is to show how powerfully the, the, the Christians emphasize and focused on how Jesus is Lord. So Jesus has become Lord, and he is Lord. This is not a future event like many want to make it out to be. Jesus is already serving as Lord. And so the question then is, over what is he is Lord, right? So he is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, that's why he's able to speak so much about his kingdom, the kingdom in his life. Because what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a, that over which a king reigns, the area of dominion of a king. So the king is Jesus. What is that over which Jesus reigns? Well, in a very real way, uh, it's the whole cosmos. Uh, and in Matthew 28, 18, uh, that's why Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, and in Colossians 1, Paul will insist that Jesus' redemption was not just of the earth, but of the whole cosmos, in fact. And that everyone will be judged by what he has said in Matthew 25, John 12, 48, and Acts 17, excuse me, 30-31. So Jesus, as the Christ, rules over all. And everyone must subject themselves to him. Uh, so there's a way in which the whole world is under his authority, but most in the world do not submit to that authority. And so that's why, in a very real way, as we can see in Ephesians 1 and 5 and Colossians 1 13, that Jesus is made Lord over the church. We also see this emphasized in 1 Thessalonians 2 12, Hebrews 12 28, 2 Peter 1 11, Revelation 1 6 and 9. And it's very clear from these passages that Jesus, you know, God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in, in Colossians chapter 1. That Jesus is already Lord in, of, of the kingdom which is manifest on earth as the church. And so it is a here and now thing. It is not something that we see just in the future. And so his kingdom is that over which he rules. And so he rules very much over the church as his body uh, in Ephesians 5. And so Jesus is Lord over the world, certainly, but truly over his body, the church, his kingdom, and those of us who would say that we are submitting to him. 
But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It's very interesting that when you poll Americans, especially, um, a very strong majority will say, oh yeah, Jesus is, is, is Lord, is Christ. But then you don't see them acting as if Jesus is Lord. Because if you understand that Jesus is Lord, you understand that Jesus has all authority, that he's the one calling the shots, that Christianity is not a democracy. We don't get to all come together and vote on what we think is right or wrong or what we're going to do. Uh, Christianity is a monarchy. It is a monarchy with an all-benevolent, loving, compassionate monarch, but it's a monarchy nonetheless. That is why in Luke 17, 7-10, it is our place to serve and to obey that we are to see ourselves as unprofitable servants just doing what we're supposed to do when we've done what we're supposed to do. It's not our place to decide, well, I, I don't like this, I'm not going to do it, or, to, you know, Jesus will certainly understand, or to cut corners. And to say, well, it doesn't really matter how I get there as long as I get there. That what he says goes. That when Saul is confronted with him in Acts 9, Saul has the understanding that, okay, Whoever is able to do this, he is Lord, and I need to do what he says. And if we understand authority, we're going to serve Jesus. And if we do not understand that authority, we may find ourselves on the wrong end of the judgment, as those who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or for that matter, have known God. According to Thessalonians 1, 6-9, according to in Matthew 7, 21-23, being those who say, Lord, Lord, but have not done what Jesus has said. So if we know he is Lord, we should not be countenancing disobedience as really an option. Okay, sure, we have free will. We can disobey. And many times we do disobey in our fear and weakness and anxiety. But it's not a license. It's not, well, Jesus understands that we just stink at this so we can just do whatever we want. Uh, Jesus is Lord. We're all going to stand before him and going to be held accountable for what we have done. And that is why uh, we need to submit to his will and not do our own will anymore. And of course, America especially is just a little too open and comfortable in this regard and has a very strong suspicion of inherited authority. And therefore, the idea of actually submitting to Jesus in all things is just very unpalatable for most Americans. Um... Those who live under dictatorships very much better understand the way that authority works, even though they've seen it in the most negative way possible. And this is why we need to abhor what is sinful in Romans 12 and verse 9. Because if we really understand that Jesus is Lord, we're just going to do what he says. We're not going to think twice about it, uh, because if we don't, there are significant consequences. And if we find it offensive, well, uh, the, the, the punishment of disobedience laid out in Scripture uh, is even more offensive. And we need to keep that in mind and uh, uh, challenge our uh, very laissez-faire view of our freedom and things based upon our American context. And Jesus' lordship is an important aspect of who he is. Uh, we need to remember, yes, Jesus is the tender shepherd. Uh, too many probably look at him as the ultra-powerful Santa Claus that uh, he knows when you've been sleeping, he knows when you're awake, but somehow there's always presence under the Christmas tree. Uh, but when we look in Revelation 1, and we see Jesus portrayed as the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days, with uh, uh, it, it, we're, we're like John is fall as though dead, right? Uh, that we, we, if we could see him in his raised glory as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, we would find that a very frightful prospect indeed. And we need to keep balance in our view of Jesus. 
because it's very easy for people to see the tender shepherd portrayal and pick up the idea of an inoffensive and soft Jesus uh, just about everything. That Jesus will kind of give you a wink and a nod. Uh, and look, grace is important. None of us are going to stand before him without the grace and love and mercy that he is expressing. And we it's hard to overemphasize that. But there's a lot of ways in which you get so comfortable with that that you start rationalizing and justifying the sin, the disobedience, the, the, the cultural distance between us and what God would have us to do in Christ. And again, we don't want to infringe upon the Lord's patience and compassion, and we understand that his love and compassion and mercy is renewed continually, uh, but he's also died to rid us of sin. He doesn't want us to wallow in sin or justify sin. And we need to remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 that they were made examples of, uh, that uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they lost their lives. That, that, However we look at Jesus, and again, we should absolutely keep these loving, tender, compassionate portraits in mind, but he's also the Lord who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. If we don't have a healthy respect and fear in the reverential way of Jesus because of this kind of thing, then our portrayal of Jesus is imbalanced and it is... Uh, no better or worse than a Jesus that is only about the judgment and condemnation and is uh, doesn't seem to have died to save the world, but to condemn it. And so we need to make sure that we, we maintain balance in how we look at Jesus and his authority and his power, because he is reigning as the chief shepherd, and that he is a shepherd, and he loves and cares for the flock. It's not a disinterested a remote leader who doesn't care. It's not an oppressive leader who's just trying to extort and to take things out of the flock. He has given himself for the flock. He has uh, given everything for the flock. And that is why the flock should be lovingly devoted to him. It can work in a healthy way. It does not need to be autocratic or authoritarian in, in, in the negative human sense as understood. But there does still need to be that honor and that respect and that value given, understanding that there are penalties and consequences for disobedience. And his lordship, seen in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, means that everyone will prove subject to him whether they like it or not. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So there's not one person who's going to somehow avoid standing before the Lord or who could appeal to any other authority. And we definitely get the impression that it's going to go better for those who recognize that he is Lord while on earth, as opposed to those who are forced to submit to him as Lord uh, after this life is over. And it uh, has been more persuasive these days to, to appeal to people uh, regarding their desire to be preserved. That Jesus died for your sins, so that you do not have to go to hell, and that's why you should serve him to avoid the penalty and the consequence. And that's certainly true, but there's also this message preached by Peter that Jesus is Lord, and that should be enough. He's the one who's in charge, therefore you should do what he says. That if indeed Jesus is Lord, we need to act like it. That we need to submit ourselves to him, to glorify him, to model and pattern ourselves after him, and to understand that he is the model of the true and faithful leader and pioneer. And that that involves certainly his love and care and compassion that he died for us, but also the need to abhor what is evil and to seek to obey him in all things and not to excuse and rationalize disobedience. So Jesus is indeed Lord, and he is going to continue to be Lord until every enemy is put under his foot, especially the enemy of death. 
and this was prophesied uh, to be the way it would be, that the Messiah reigns from heaven as Lord of all, and that his kingdom is presently manifest in the church and all those who submit to the reign of God and Christ. And since he is Lord, we should obey him. We have free will. We can choose not to obey. But if we understand Jesus is the Lord and the judge, then we need to obey. We, should have, we have no excuse. We need to submit to him and to, to accomplish his purposes. And that is why it is so important for us to serve our Lord, the risen Christ, to uh, be the flock of the chief shepherd and to do all things to glorify and honor him. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings of life that you've given us, for you and your love and your care, your provision for us, the covenant loyalty you've displayed toward us, and the love that you've shown us in Jesus, and that Jesus lived and died, was raised in power, and now serves as Lord and reigns as Lord. And we pray, Father, we would submit ourselves under the rule of your Son, and that we would glorify you in all things. Uh, by accomplishing his purposes. We're thankful for the Spirit and the Word and all the many blessings you've given us. We are mindful, Father, of all those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them. We pray for those who are in distress and pain and grief, that you would comfort them and strengthen them, that you provide for those in need, that you would preserve life wherever it's in danger, that your justice and righteousness would flow in our land and other lands, and that the the, the schemes of the powers and principalities against us would uh, not stand, and that we would be able to resist them in the name of Jesus. We pray, Father, for the strength, wisdom, and understanding to submit to the ways of your Son and his reign, that we would participate in his kingdom and to glorify him as Lord, and that others would recognize uh, him as Lord through our faithful service to him, that you would be glorified in all things. We look forward to when Jesus returns, that we can share in life with him in you forever. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. We're again so glad that you've joined us. Love to hear your thoughts about Jesus as Lord. What does it mean that he is Lord? How is that supposed to affect our lives? And what it means that we are to expect when he returns. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, if you have a prayer request, or if there's any way we can be of service, please reach out to us. Talk to us in the comments. Uh, subscribe to us where you found us. Uh, if we uh, can be of any further service, reach out to us at VenetureToChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.